Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we study this passage tonight, Lord, with uh, some trepidation, recognizing the difficulties of it, at the same time, uh, Lord, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would equip us to live as your people here in the world in anticipation of Christ's return. We pray in his name. Amen. Who studied First Thessalonians, one of the things that we noted is that each chapter uh, in First Thessalonians, and of course you will know that Paul did not write them as chapters, uh, that was something that came much later, uh, but each chapter of the book contains a reference to the return of Christ. Uh, in fact, Paul takes up that theme, sometimes merely referring to it, and takes it up sometimes to go into some detail, as in chapter 4, where he wants to comfort them, uh, specifically with reference to loved ones who have died, and they wonder what has become of them or what will, what will be their experience of the return of Christ. And then after that, where he uh, just reminds them of the judgment that is to come with the return of Christ, and that we who are in the light, uh, while we may not know the details of Jesus' return, at least know that he is coming back, and so won't be quite as surprised, perhaps, as the world and its drunken darkness that uh, really has no expectation or anticipation of Jesus' return. Well, some of those same things occur in Second Thessalonians, but there's one passage here that we've just read that uh, Paul takes up something he really didn't cover at all in First Thessalonians, and so I want us to look at that tonight. It has to do with the man of lawlessness, or uh, some translations may read the man of sin. That's a uh, textual variation. Uh, the two words in Greek start with the same letter, uh, and it's quite possible uh, that Paul wrote uh, the, the, the man of lawlessness, which is the most likely reading, anomias, nomos law, ah, negates it like an atheist, uh, anomias, uh, lawlessness, uh, or hamartia, which despite the H sound at the beginning begins with an alpha also in Greek, and, and, it's, and it's a more common word, a man of sin, or the word sin, and so it's more likely, given these two uh, variations, that uh, the, since it's the more unlikely word, less common word, the man of lawlessness is probably the more likely, and the man of sin probably came from it uh, by a scribal error and was copied in other manuscripts. But the end result basically is the same. Either way, it really doesn't change the whole meaning. Uh, lawlessness is sin, as John reminds us. Uh, sin is lawlessness. So uh, either way, we're talking about an evil character here. So uh, let's look at what the passage has to say about this figure. Uh, Paul does not use the term, but we would assume that uh, this is the same being, the same figure, the same phenomenon that John refers to uh, in 1 John chapter 2 as the Antichrist, uh, this figure that appears. And uh, so let's go ahead and look at the passage before us. In the first place, uh, Paul gives warning about false teaching in the first three verses there. Uh, he is concerned that, uh, about what they're hearing. He is concerned that they not be uh, unduly alarmed or led astray. Look at what he says. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Now we're talking about this man of lawlessness, but what Paul has in mind is the, is the, the bigger picture is the return of Christ. And again, he's back on that theme uh, of Christ's return. And that's what he's referring to here. Um, he says, now concerning that, our being gathered together to him, which he spoke about in his first letter, we ask you, brothers, 
not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Maybe they've heard some startling things or even frightening things. um, He doesn't want them to be afraid. He doesn't want them to be uh, rattled by what they hear, either by a spirit. uh, Presumably they're a reference to some prophecy given, some prophecy uttered, uh, or a spoken word someone speaking to them, or a letter seeming to be from us. Now, we do know that there are uh, the so-called pseudepigrapha, the false writings uh, that occurred that were later, that sometimes would bear an apostle's name, that are uh, plainly not written by that apostle, uh, apparently uh, maybe even in uh, Paul's own lifetime, even early, relatively early on when this letter was written. There may have been some letters going around that uh, were under the pretense of having been written by Paul. Uh, he says, first, a letter, a letter seeming to be from us, saying what? Well, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Now, Paul's words are necessary now as they were then. Uh, there have been uh, numerous uh, Statements about the return of Christ, predictions of the return of Christ, um, various groups, various people. I think Charles Russell, founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the prophecies that Christ would return in 1874, and that didn't happen. He would return in 1914, which didn't happen. Although his successor, one of his successors later said, well, Jesus actually did return in 1914, but it was a secret thing. Came back, I believe it was on October 1st, 1914. Uh, so it actually has already happened. Uh, but, you know, you know the kinds of things I'm talking about. All these, you know, the, 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 uh, the prophecies, the predictions, and even people taking it so seriously as to, to, to quit their jobs, you know, sell their businesses, and you know, run to the top of mountaintops and wait for Jesus to come back, that kind of thing. Well, Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way. Uh, as God's people, we shouldn't be deceived about these things because of what Jesus has said, uh, that no one knows when Jesus was coming back, only the Father, uh, that that would come as a surprise. Uh, granted, it for, as for Christians, it's, it, it's an expected event. We just don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, so it's not a surprise that it happens, but uh, it may be something of a surprise when it happens. But Paul says he doesn't want them to be saved primarily in this passage because there's something else that has to happen first. Uh, let no one deceive you in any way. And now, so he gives them a warning it's false teachers or false teaching about the return of Christ, but now he gives them a warning about the, uh, the man of lawlessness, a warning about the Antichrist. And let's look at what he says here. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So two things he refers to that apparently are related and maybe maybe not identical, but are related. First of all, he refers here to the rebellion, uh, the Greek word from which our word apostasy comes, the idea of a falling away, uh, and yet the Greek word, the way it's usually used, refers to a, an insurrection, a rebellion, either a political rebellion, a military rebellion, uh, but the idea of, of an uprising. And uh, so the ESV, I think, does well to translate it rebellion there, not so much an apostasy, uh, as just actually a uh, revolt. Uh, the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, and then uh, by opposition here, he also calls him the son of destruction. Um, 
literally the son of perdition. Uh, the same term, same phrase that's used of, that Jesus uses of Judas Iscariot. You know, in John chapter 17, uh, Jesus' prayer. And he says to his father, not one of them has been lost except the son of perdition. Uh, I think the NIV translates it, the one doomed to destruction. The son of perdition is a Hebrew expression or a Hebrew uh, way of phrasing it. Uh, son of destruction, one doomed to destruction, one of whom destruction is the characteristic or the fate that is coming. And that's exactly the same expression, son of perdition or son of destruction, that is used here of this figure, this man of lawlessness who is to appear. Now, Paul's saying you don't need to be afraid. This will not happen until this rebellion or revolt takes place. This man of lawlessness appears. Uh, what is characteristic of him? Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? question is, who is or what is the man of lawlessness? Uh, that's a hard one to answer. Um, uh, Paul speaks here of him setting himself up in the temple. Uh, and in fact, if you look through the Old Testament and the intertestamental history, and even the New Testament history in the first century, uh, there are any number of figures uh, or actions that might qualify. Um, Antiochus IV, uh, named Epiphanes, uh, desecrated the temple by setting up a, a statue there. Um, Jesus spoke, for example, in Matthew 24 of the abomination of desolation, which itself is a phrase taken from Daniel uh, of a desecration of the temple. Uh, later, Roman emperors like Caligula uh, who wanted to set up a statue of himself, an image of himself in the temple, and so uh, desecrate it, similar to Antiochus Epiphanes and the sacrifice of pigs in the temple, that kind of thing. Um, the difficulty with all of those views uh, is that they don't they seem too early. I mean, Paul is saying the return of Christ will not happen until these things take place. Now, there are some views that would say, well, those were what Paul was talking about here in the, in, in the return of Christ having to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. But I think he's talking about, obviously, where these people are concerned, something happening farther out, the actual return of Christ, the resurrection, the judgment, the very things we've been talking about as we've studied his letters. And so it seems to me that to try to, to, to tag the man of lawlessness with a Roman emperor or the Roman empire or this or that uh, is, is simply misguided. However, turn over to 1 John chapter 2. Mention there where John refers to the Antichrist. A little different take on, on this kind of thing. 1 John chapter 2 verse 18. John writes, children, it is, and this, by the way, is, is much, much later uh, than when Paul wrote First uh, and Second Thessalonians. Children, this is uh, chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and if you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not 
of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so John is writing about people in his own time, in fact, people who had been part of their group but had gone out from them. Now he says the Antichrist is coming, but even now many Antichrists have come. And he says the Antichrist he's referring to, present day, his contemporaries, are those who deny that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, come in the flesh. And so there is something to be said for the whole concept of antichrists, those who deny Christ, even false teachers in the church, uh, that are maybe prototype or foreshadowing of a great antichrist, this great man of lawlessness that Paul refers to here. Now, where will this happen? Well, he sets himself up, up against God, against what, you know, the one who was worshipped, takes his seat in the temple of God. Now, again, we've looked at when would that be, what would that be, and there, there were instances where that kind of thing happened, but it seems best in light of the whole teaching of Scripture to take this somewhat metaphorically, setting himself up not necessarily in the actual literal temple of God, which at any rate, uh, by now, is, is no longer standing, and, uh, and, and, but, but represents the dwelling of God, represents the place of God, represents the rule of God in the midst of his people, and so someone who, came, who comes and, and puts himself in the place of God, demanding tribute, worship, uh, those things that should belong to God alone. Now, whether it's the literal temple, I think is unlikely, uh, more likely figuratively the place of God. Uh, at any rate, this is someone who vaunts himself, puts himself up uh, as, as, as a savior, as, as an object of worship, as a ruler. Now, verse 5 is... We would have, they could say yes, we would all have to say no. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Well, they knew, they heard. And that's part of the difficulty in the passage is Paul is writing to people who already have a lot of the background that you and I really don't have. Because they say, well, you know, I told you about all this. And they're saying, mm-hmm, we're all going, <laughs> we, don't, we don't know. Um, but he's taught them about this and he reminds them of these things. And then again, verse 6. And you know, they know, we wish we knew more, you know that what is, restra- that you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Um, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now again, Paul says, you know what's restraining him. And Paul told them, but since they knew it, he didn't repeat it. We don't know what it is, and that's fine, because the Holy Spirit didn't see fit for us to have it in the detail that Paul had taught them when he was in Thessalonica with them. But uh, what is the restraint? What is it that is restraining this, this evil, this, this man of evil, this man of lawlessness? Uh, what is restraining him that he may be revealed in his time? Uh, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Vinberius' um, ideas put forth about what it is that's restraining the man of lawlessness. 
Uh, honestly, it's hard to find any of them totally satisfactory, although one that suggested that I think does make sense and can make sense uh, is, is government itself. Government insofar as it fulfills the God-appointed role that it has, that we spoke of this morning, of being a hindrance to evil, of standing in the way of the spread of evil, of violence, of corruption. Uh, that is government's role. That is, it is an instrument of God, as, in a sense, as a means of his common grace in, in sub- subduing, restraining lawlessness, chaos, anarchy, evil uh, in the world. Now, government itself is not perfect. Government also is fallen and made up of fallen people. And so, yes, you can certainly have corrupt governments. Um, John Stott makes a good case for, for government being the thing that restrains here. Uh, and refers to until it is taken out of the way. Um, the other thing we need to, to, to notice here is that the passive uh, verbs that are used, so that he may be revealed in his time. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So the picture that we, and, and again, that's the, the reminder that God is the one in charge. God is the one who can reveal the Antichrist. God is the one who actually is in control. And we need to be reminded of that, and we'll be reminded of it again in this passage, that um, we need to be careful that we don't somehow see this as an equal, the evil equal of God. Uh, no, that God is working out his purposes. And even this rebellion... And even the revelation, the, the manifestation of this man of lawlessness, whoever or whatever he might be, uh, as the, the leader or the epitome of this revolt, this rebellion, is under God's sovereignty and under God's control. And Paul writes, in the beginning, you know, I, I want to tell you about the return of Christ. Well, it won't happen until this takes place. I remember um, discussions in youth group, hearing Antichrist, boy, that sounded scary, and just really being afraid. But that's, that's not the point. Uh, the point here is that the, these are things that will happen before Jesus returns for his people, uh, who certainly are protected him, uh, by him through it all. Now, verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So, there's, there's uh, in Paul's uh, teaching here, this future rebellion, this future appearance, re- revealing of this man of lawlessness, but in fact, lawlessness is already at work. There is this principle of sin in the world. There is this principle where evil spreads, where unbelief, where rebellion against God's uh, law is at work. And, and we, we see that. I mean, we, we know that. Uh, and I think that's what Paul is referring to here. Even though it's not reached this uh, culmination that he seems to speak of here, certainly there's already uh, this, this lawlessness, uh, this principle of iniquity at work in, in the world and, and rebellion against God. There has been since Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sinned. Uh, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Verse uh, 8, And then the lawlessness, lawless one will be revealed. So the restraint is removed, whether that's the collapse of government, uh, just the total capitulation of government to, to wickedness, uh, whatever the restraint is, is removed. And the lawless one will be revealed. And then what happens? Look at verse 8 again. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I think there's something in Paul's suddenness there that is very comforting. 
Jesus has to do no more than show up. And the lawless one is history. It's, it's taken care of. What will the time frame be? I don't know. But the point here is that he is revealed and Jesus appears and he's killed. Killed with the breath of his mouth. Bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The mere fact that Jesus has showed up is enough to defeat the lawless one. And so that should, that should assure us of any fears, any, any concern here about what might, what might happen. Um, he, is under, he, is, he is squelched. He is put down by Christ. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, verse 9, because this is the activity of Satan. Satan is a defeated enemy already. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. I don't, if if you read that in Greek, it would be with all power and signs and wonders false. And I think the false there refers to all three. Uh, False signs, uh, false power, false signs, false wonders. False not because they're not real, but false because their purpose is to deceive. Satan has his power. The signs could be very real. It's not because they're fake. It's not because they're just an illusion, you know, a magic trick. But false because they deceive. False because they don't bear witness to the truth. You know, Jesus' miracles, and and those the apostles did by his power, were referred to as signs, were referred to as wonders. Uh, But they were true. They, They pointed to the truth. They pointed to Christ and who he is. Well, these are false. Uh, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Now, Paul's warned them about this false teaching. Don't don't be deceived about rumors and reports about the return of Christ. He warns them about the uh, the, the one doing the deceiving, the lawless one, who would come in and um, put himself in the place of God. And and by the way, there are other passages uh, that deal with this. Um, Matthew uh, 24, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about some of the same things in a little different kind of language. Um, but Paul's warning them here about these things that would happen before the return of Christ, this general rebellion, turning away from God, following what is not God, but puts itself in the place of God. And then warning about those who are deceived. Not to be deceived, the one who would deceive, and then those who are deceived in these last few verses, verse 10, with all wicked deception, for those who are perishing. Now, these are tragic verses, uh, and, yet, and yet true, accurate, uh, because they describe those who will be deceived, and even now are deceived, but it's because that's what they want. Look at verse 10. Those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth, and so be saved. Therefore... Because they refuse to love the truth and be saved, because they're deceived. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false. What this reminds me of is Romans 1. Remember in Romans 1, where uh, Paul describes people suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, uh, sinning, uh, pursuing all kinds of perversities, and three times we read, God gave them over to their sin. Now, God giving them over did not make them start sinning. They were already sinning. 
and God gave them more of what they wanted. And, and it's as if he says, that's what you want, okay, I will let you have what you want. Um, and so he, he removes his restraint from them, I guess, individually, perhaps in terms of a society, uh, allowing them to have their way, allowing them to live in their sin, which in itself is a terrible judgment. Um, sometimes the very presence of sin itself is its own judgment. And um, I think of that passage when I read this. It's because it's not even so much that, that they're deceived because, because God uh, sends them a strong delusion. They're already deceived. They're already deluded, and God gives them over to that. And it seems to be the, the flow of thought here. They refused to love the truth, so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. A very sad picture of people who are deceived, of people who apparently were uh, presented with the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ, and rejected it. They loved their lies, they loved their deception, therefore God gave them over to this delusion and their loss, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. If that's not a picture of our sinful natures, I don't know what is. They had pleasure in unrighteousness. They loved it. They reveled in it. That was their that was you know the water in which they swam. That was the air that they breathed. And when presented with the truth, they rejected it. Now, you can certainly go behind the scenes back to God's um, purposes, his decrees in election. But that's a picture of the reprobate. That is a picture of the person who, faced with the truth itself, is still blind, still rejects the truth, still loves their sin, still takes pleasure in unrighteousness, and therefore are condemned. And those are the people who will be led astray by the man of lawlessness, by the mystery of lawlessness now at work in the world. Uh, and we need to recognize that. Um, and this passage is valuable for that reason, that it helps us to understand what's going on, um, why people can hear the gospel and, and reject it, or even, even within a family, why you might believe and a brother or sister totally rejects the gospel, maybe brought up in the same household. Um, ultimately, it goes back to God's sovereign grace, but that's not to deny our own responsibility in rejecting the gospel. And that's what this passage speaks of here. And so, as Paul writes to them, he writes to them that they themselves not be deceived about reports they're hearing about the return of Christ, uh, that they be aware that Christ won't return until this rebellion, until this man of lawlessness appears. And it's certainly easy to speculate, but hard to be too dogmatic about exactly who and what it is that Paul is talking about here. But at any rate, it would certainly be uh, a situation in which many will be deceived, and then he refers to those at the end of this chapter, those who would be um, who would be deceived and, and love their sin and remain in it for their own condemnation. But let us not forget that Paul's purpose here is, as he says in verse 1, just to, to teach about the return of Christ. These are things that must happen and will happen before the return of Christ and could certainly in some way be happening in our own day, as they have been in every day, even since Paul wrote. And John says, even now, many antichrists are out there uh, teaching falsehood. 
But with us, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who have believed in him, who have repented, you are safe. You are protected. You are covered by Christ's blood, and nothing, no man of lawlessness, can, uh, can take you away from him. And that's why Paul writes in verse 13, and we'll close with this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word, or as with you and me here today, by our letter. Let's pray.